European Heart Journal, Issue at a Glance, Volume 41, Issue 12, Focus Issue, Heart Failure, by Editor-in-Chief Professor Thomas Lucia, read to you by Morgan Bryan. Ejection Fraction to Classify Heart Failure. Are we using the right thing? Initially, heart failure was a condition with reduced ejection fraction, or HEF-REF. Later on, it was noted that patients with near-normal or normal EF could present with symptoms of heart failure a condition labelled as heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, or HEF-PEF, which remains an enigma and a challenge for clinicians. The current focus issue on heart failure starts with The Year in Cardiology, Heart Failure by John Cleland from the Imperial College and Glasgow University in the United Kingdom. The authors note that 2019 has brought many new concepts and an abundance of new data on the nature, management and outcomes of HEF-REF and HEF-PEF. The importance of these novel findings reviewed in this article is further supported by the fact that the outcome of cardiovascular disease is determined to a large extent by the ability to delay or to present the development of heart failure. Accordingly, attention is shifting from early diagnosis of and intervention for heart failure. Patients with type 2 diabetes mellitus or coronary artery disease have a relatively good prognosis unless plasma concentrations of natriuretic peptides are increased reflecting cardiac or renal dysfunction. Adoption of a simple universal definition of heart failure based on natriuretic peptides would facilitate early diagnosis and treatment, but will lead to an enormous increase in its prevalence. The 2016 ESC guidelines have defined three categories for heart failure based on left ventricular ejection fraction, or LVEF. However, the evidence for it is lacking, in particular for the limits currently defined. It continues to remain a matter of debate where the sweet spot for LVEF lays. This has been properly addressed in the fast track, Routinely Reported Ejection Fraction and Mortality in Clinical Practice, Where Does the Nadir of Risk Lie? by Brandon Fondwalt and colleagues from Geisinger in Danville, Pennsylvania, USA. Physician reported LVEF on 403,977 echocardiograms from 203,135 patients were linked to all-cause mortality using electronic health records. A data set of 45,531 echocardiograms and 35,976 patients from New Zealand provided independent validation. Overall, adjusted hazard ratios, or HR, for mortality showed a U-shaped relationship for LVEF, with a nadir of risk of 60 to 65%, an HR of 1.71 with greater than or equal to 70%, and one of 1.73 in the range of 35 to 40%. Similar relationships with nadir at 60 to 65% were observed in the validation dataset, as well as for each age group and both sexes, and after adjustment for conditions associated with an elevated LVEF, including mitral regurgitation, increased wall thickness and anemia. Thus, deviation of LVEF from 60 to 65% is associated with an increase in mortality, regardless of age, sex or other relevant comorbidities such as heart failure. This data will stimulate debate about the definition of a normal LVEF, as well as the possible recognition of phenotypes characterised by supranormal LVEF, as outlined in an editorial by Heron Bax from the Leiden University Medical Centre in the Netherlands. 
we may have to rethink whether LVEF is really a useful main criterion to characterise patients with heart failure. This issue becomes even more obvious in specific forms of HEFPEF. Cardiac amyloidosis is more common than previously thought and typically manifests as HEFPEF due to the extracellular plaques of aggregated transthyretin or TTR and is associated with fierce prognosis. Despite recent successes in halting disease progression with a TTR stabiliser and encouraging preliminary findings with TTR silencers, these agents are not targeting pre-existing plaques, but rather just delay or prevent the formation of new plaques, explaining their delayed onset of action in trials. In their manuscript, a novel monoclonal antibody targeting aggregated transthyretin facilitates its removal and functional recovery in an experimental model. Jacob George and colleagues from the Kaplan Medical Center in Rohavet, Israel, examined the novel LGG1 monoclonal antibody against aggregated TTR in experimental cardiac amyloidosis. The antibody immunoprecipitants TTR in the sera of patients with wild-type ATTR and stains cardiac plaques. Furthermore, the antibody facilitates aggregated TTR uptake by myeloid cells and protects cardiomyocytes from TTR-inducible toxicity. In a novel in vivo model of wild-type ATTR amyloidosis, the antibody enhanced the disappearance of pyrophosphate signals, a testing for a rapid amyloid deposit removal and degradation, and also improved echocardiographic measures of cardiac performance. Importantly, a capture ELISA developed based on the antibody exhibited higher levels of aggregated TTR in the sera of wild-type ATTR amyloidosis patients as compared with those with heart failure, suggesting a potential applicability in diagnosis and pharmacodynamic guidance of dosing. Thus, the antibody targeting aggregated TTR exhibits beneficial effects in novel experimental wild-type ATTR and possesses a potential diagnostic utility. Whether this novel antibody could potentially be used as a disease-modifying agent in ATTR amyloidosis is further discussed in a balanced editorial by Rodney Falk from the Harvard University School of Medicine in Boston, Massachusetts, USA. Right ventricular dysfunction is an important determinant of functional status leading to tricuspid regurgitation and impaired survival in various disease states. However, little is known about its epidemiology and the outcome of patients with severe right ventricular dysfunction. In their article entitled Etiology and Outcomes of Severe Right Ventricular Dysfunction, Ratnazari Padang and colleagues from the Mayo Clinic, Minnesota in Rochester, Minnesota, USA examined this issue. In 64,728 patients undergoing echocardiography, mild or more right ventricular dysfunction occurred in 21%. This study focused on the 1,299, or 4%, of patients with severe right ventricular dysfunction. The most common causes were left-sided heart disease in 46%, pulmonary thromboembolic disease in 18%, chronic lung disease or hypoxia in 17%, and pulmonary arterial hypertension in 11%. After a mean two-year follow-up, 701 deaths occurred, two-thirds within the first year of diagnosis. The overall probability of survival at one and five years for the entire cohort were 61% and 35% respectively. In the left heart disease, one and five-year survival rates were 61% and 33% respectively. 
In pulmonary arterial hypertension, the corresponding values were 76% and 50%. In thromboembolic disease, 71% and 49%. And in chronic lung disease, 42% and 8% respectively. Importantly, moderate to severe tricuspid regurgitation portended worse survival. Thus, one-year mortality of patients with severe right ventricular dysfunction is high and dependent on the underlying cause, with left heart disease being the most common and prognosis being worst in chronic lung disease. These clinically important findings are put into context in a thoughtful editorial by Marco Guazzi from the Cardiopulmonary Laboratory of the Cardiology Division of the University of Milano in Italy. Traditionally, clinicians measured LVEF and at best left ventricular pulmonary pressure in the evaluation of heart failure. However, ventricular pressure volume analysis is the reference method for the study of cardiac mechanics, as pointed out by Nicholas van Mayhem and colleagues from the Thorax Center Erasmus MC Rotterdam in the Netherlands. In their review, Invasive Left Ventricular Pressure Volume Analysis, Overview and Practical Clinical Implications. Indeed, advances in calibration algorithms and measuring techniques brought new perspective for its application in different research and clinical settings. Simultaneous pressure volume measurements in the heart chambers offers unique insights into mechanical cardiac efficiency. Beat-to-beat -beat invasive pressure volume monitoring can be instrumental in the understanding and the management of heart failure, valvular heart disease and mechanical cardiac support. The last article is based on the Jeffrey Rose Lecture given at the European Society of Cardiology meeting held in conjunction with the World Congress of Cardiology in Paris 2019 entitled Heart Failure Can Affect Everyone, the ESC Jeffrey Rose Lecture by Karen Sliwa from the University of Cape Town in South Africa. In her lecture, she applies the concept of sick individuals versus sick population, pioneered by Jeffrey Rose 35 years ago, to heart failure. Indeed, heart failure not only affects a large spectrum of the population globally, but it occurs in all ages and equally in both genders. Heart failure in most parts of the world is clearly not a disease of the elderly. There are multiple and complex pathways leading to heart failure, which include various risk factors, such as communicable diseases and exposure to indoor and environmental pollutants, poverty and overcrowding, as well as suboptimal access to healthcare systems due to socio-economic inequities. The issue is further complemented by a discussion forum contribution. In this contribution, how much can acute heart failure patients with low basic blood pressure systolic blood pressure between 90 and 100 millimeters of mercury, benefit from the use of vasodilators. Ying Zhou and colleagues from the first affiliated hospital in Nanchang University, Nanchang, China, comment on the recent contribution entitled 2016 ESC Guidelines for the Diagnosis and Treatment of Acute and Chronic Heart Failure, the Task Force for the Diagnosis and Treatment of Acute and Chronic Heart Failure of the European Society of Cardiology, or ESC developed with special contribution of the Heart Failure Association by Piotr Ponikowski from the Clinical Military Hospital of Wroclaw in Poland. The editors hope that this issue of the European Heart Journal will find the interest of its listeners.